Hey, hey, welcome to Disability Law Show. We're back. You're back. Good to have you here. It's uh, John Scholes and, as always, Tamar Agopian. She's the one with the actual knowledge. I just kind of steer the ship. She fills it. That's the important part. I want to make sure you uh, realize you can reach out to Tamar anytime. The phone number, one 855 And another place for you to ask questions called MyDisabilityQuestions.com. It's free. It's anonymous. It's got a searchable database, which is a nice uh, little perk to that one. So maybe a question like yours has been asked previously and it's been answered by tomorrow and her team but if not leave it there and they'll get to it for sure a lot of emails to get through uh, on the show today of course tomorrow but we always start off with a little week that was something you've been working on pal what do you got for sure but even before i get there john i like this mm-hmm. idea of steering the ship uh you know we recently went to the boat show with our kids <laughs> i gotta tell you you know i like the idea of being the captain uh but anyway <laughs> i think you've known me long enough to probably realize as much and so for our listeners you know i do like to have a lot of control over the process which is why i don't like appeals everyone and <laughs> i would much prefer to help you with your disability claim uh by bringing a legal claim uh, against the insurance company. So I'm tying that in with steering the ship. So the week that was, this week, I am knee-deep, John, and a mediation that I've got coming up for a client. I want to provide our listeners some high-level details while trying to maintain the confidentiality for my client. Okay. High-level details is this. Her disability claim has a couple of different features to it, uh, primarily mental health, some that was uh, pre-existing, in essence, she's had, you know, health issues, uh, anxiety and depression for a long, long time, bipolar disorder as well, but had managed to have periods of time where she was working without being too troubled with her mental health conditions. And then things started to progressively get worse for her from a health perspective, and she developed some physical symptoms which at the moment, none of the specialists or doctors really can account for. They're not really sure what's causing dizzy spells, uh, you know, irritable bowel issues, gastritis, wow. you know, these kinds of things. So physical elements to uh, that may or may not be related to uh, mental health conditions. The worst one she describes is constant ringing in her ears. And so really, really distracting. And she was doing a job that was very client facing and it had lots of targets and requirements in terms of uh, metrics that she had to meet. And she was struggling with that. Um, It got through to a point where uh, after COVID, her employer had implemented a number of different um, health checks. And so she was required to actually disclose what was happening to her from a health perspective And when she did that, COVID or not, she was precluded from going into work. So they said, well, look, but you've got this one symptom and it could be COVID related. So you're not coming in. So naturally, this impacted her performance. And so she was away from work and not allowed to work remotely. And so it just further compounded the problem. And so the health issues started getting worse. The performance issues started getting worse. And she was having a lot of challenges with her employer in accommodating uh, what was happening from a health perspective and a declining health feature. The reason why I focus on this, John, is because, uh, you know, the inevitable end to this is that the disability insured denied her claim right out of the gates by saying it was all workplace related. And yet we see a lot of profiles like this of individuals who have already not the best of health, but have managed to continue working. Then it declines over a period of time. Their performance becomes a problem. There are issues at work. And it's too easy for the disability insurer to take their fallback position, which is 
This is a workplace conflict. It's not a true disability claim. We are not going to approve your claim. What's worse in my client's situation, John, is that the employer was actually the payer of the initial short-term disability benefit claim. So they were involved in the decision-making behind the scenes of what was happening with what the insurer was doing in adjudicating the disability claim. Because we talk about this sometimes on the show is that you might have an insurance company who's looking at the medical information and providing decisions, but if you had been approved, your employer is actually the one who pays the benefits. And so you may never know how much influence your employer has had on that decision-making, uh, but they try and keep an arm's length by having this insurer basically do their bidding for them. Um, and so this is essentially what's happened with my client. And so long story short, you know, she goes through, no word of a lie, four appeals. She tries to get the benefits oh, approved four times. By that point, she would have been entitled to long-term, you know, per, you know, goes forward with an LTD claim as well, denied on that too, because insurance company says, well, you didn't get all your short-term paid, so we're not even going to consider the long-term. And, you know, fast forward uh, in the period of time where she's finally retained me and we're at the doorsteps of this mediation process. And you've got to wonder what's going to happen in a situation like this. Look, She's been outside of the work setting for a long time now, and she's still struggling with her health, John, I can tell you. And what's made things worse is that she's had no financial compensation whatsoever. A lot of the treatment options that's being recommended, she's had to pay out of pocket, which she cannot afford to pay. The employer has cut off her extended health care plan. I mean, it's gone from bad to worse for her. And yet both the employer and the insurer are saying, you're not disabled, you know, we're not paying benefits kind of thing, out of the gates. Oh. Thing is, though... This is what our listeners don't realize is that because I've brought the legal claim, they are actually open to talking about resolving the claim. They've not suggested that we go through the rigors of litigation, which is actually very common for disability yep. insurers. You know, mm -hmm. they want to minimize that risk. They want to minimize the potential bad faith arguments, the potential risk that a judge will disagree with what they've done or how they've treated someone. And they do want to get ahead of this and have a reasonable discussion about settlement. And this is what I've emphasized to my client. I said, look, I go into these mediation settings with a lot of optimism because myself and my team have a high, high degree of success in resolving these claims for our clients. And the time investment for our clients is very low in a perspective like this, John, because we're doing all the legwork. I prepare the brief. I get all the medical information. If there's gaps in, in medical information, I will ask a doctor to prepare a report, for example, which I did in this claim as well. And I will use everything in my armor to try and get the insurer to understand what they seem to refuse to accept at the time that she was struggling time and again to get her benefits approved. And I can assure you they're not going to say no to me. There will be compensation there for my client, I think, at the end of the day. And I've advised her as much. And so for our listeners, I think... Look, a couple of takeaways. I mean, for one, when you've got various health issues going on and it's sort of mental health and physical and it's progressive and it's worsening, you do want to make sure that your doctors are documenting all of those symptoms very carefully. And what was really good about my client's family doctor was that he actually referred her out, John, to various specialists to further assess, further investigate all of the things that were going on from a health perspective, neurologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, these kinds of things. And yes, it can take a very, very long time to see these kinds of specialists, but having them in the profile of the assessment tools are really, really important in a disability context because it demonstrates that there is legitimacy to the symptoms, 
that they are so bad that they are disabling and require further investigation and treatment. All of that can be read into just your family doctor making that referral and making sure that they're covering off all the medical bases in terms of trying to figure out what's going on. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether they put a label on it. Just because a doctor says it's vertigo or it's anxiety or it's major depressive disorder, it doesn't necessarily matter in a disability context if the symptoms in and of themselves are preventing someone from working. Right. Mm -hmm. And in this phase, right, of John, at the beginning phases of a disability claim, what the insurer is looking at is can you work at your own occupation? So can you go back to your job, do the essential duties, and earn the 100% of your salary that you were entitled mm -hmm. to earn at that time? And so I think in a profile like this, medical information is super important and asserting that legal claim early. I really uh, do, did get frustrated that it had taken her so long to get to that point because it puts that much more financial strain on her, right? And I want to make it my problem. Let me try and push that envelope with a disability insurer instead of trying appeal after appeal and running down that clock of actually starting that legal claim. Because for, for most provinces that we work in, John, it's a two-year window. And it's a two-year window from the first time that you are declined benefits, right. not the last time, right? Yeah. And so you can see a situation where people run out of time for either from a financial perspective, health perspective, they get exasper exasperated, they don't want to move forward with it. Um, and then, of course, the limitation period, which is one that's really, really important. So look, I have a very good degree of confidence that we're going to be able to resolve this claim for my client once and for all. But I thought it was a good one to sort of start off our show talking about because you can see the fallback position from the disability insurer and we see this time and again and it is not a reason that will withstand the scrutiny of a judge and the insurance companies know it. It's a good opening uh, opening salvo there, my friend. The number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred help at disabilityrights.ca. I want to bounce over to an email. I'm going to read this. We'll start on, and then we'll come back after the break. Um, Carrie says, "Hey guys, I'm on LTD, recovering from a serious cancer diagnosis. Uh, it's been stressful, and my life expectancy is unclear. Even though I'm currently in remission, my husband would like us to take a few trips out of province and out of the country to help relax and recover." Can I get in trouble with my employer and ensure if I were to travel, though I am physically recovered, I'm still psychologically unable to work? Really good question, Carrie. I'm looking forward to getting into this uh, quite deeply in terms of how does this play itself out, both for the employer and the disability insurer. I'll leave it here. There is, I think, a good possibility that travel is okay and not necessarily outside of the uh, disability policy. So I don't think she will necessarily get in trouble, but let's pick this up after our break, John. You bet. We'll drill down a little deeper after that break. And again, that number as we get into a break, one 821 5900 Use that anytime you would like and help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll continue after a break right here, the Disability Law Show. Hang on. Hey, welcome back. Disability Law Show, John Schools, Tamar Agopian, who is reachable anytime. Got a great team with her as well. She only carries the best people with her. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Just before the break, uh, we at least got uh, the dust uh, dust off of Carrie's email, basically recovering from cancer in remission, wants to know if she could travel maybe out of province, out of country, and what the repercussions uh, will be with the insurance company and the employer for that matter for doing that. What do you think? So the starting point for this discussion, John, is always the disability policy. And the reason why I say that is because disability benefits, really the entitlement to them, is tied to that policy. It's a contract. 
It's an agreement, typically in a group setting. In other words, it's all the employees of one employer who have this disability contract with a disability insurer. And the disability insurer usually will have the same types of provisions in most of their policies. And so you want to see what your specific policy says as it relates to absences from the country. And the reason that's significant is because for disability insurance, sometimes you are not entitled to disability benefits for any period that you're outside of Canada for a, a prolonged period of time. I've seen policies be around four months, sometimes a little less than that, John. But this is why if Carrie and her husband are thinking short-term travel within or outside of Canada, I think I'm not that concerned, but I'd much prefer her putting her eyes on that disability policy and making sure it's not an issue. Okay, so that's my first piece of advice. The second part to this is what she talks to us about, look, you know, I'm psychologically not ready to work. I'm recovering from cancer. Absolutely fair profile. It is important, though, that she does have that endorsement from her family doctor, her oncologist, whoever is treating her, perhaps she's seeing a counselor or a psychologist. It's important that any one of those treatment providers makes clear that they're giving the green light for the travel. In fact, it's almost like it's medically endorsed, John. And if it is, I think the insurer would have a hard time saying, look, just because you can travel, it means you can work, which I have seen insurance companies take that position. Oh, well, you went to two weeks to Portugal. And so it must mean that you can definitely work because you can travel. And travel can be for a whole host of reasons, sometimes family circumstances, but more importantly, it can be to improve your mental health. And so when I hear emails like Carrie's, I absolutely understand the concern around what's going to happen with my disability benefits. But I really don't think that the insurer is in a good position to challenge or give you any sort of trouble about your disability benefits if you've got the endorsement from your doctor that this travel is medically necessary or right. at the very least encouraged, right? But she says one other thing to us, John, which is, can I get in trouble from my employer if I travel and leave the country? That's the part that I'm curious about because... If she is on claim and receiving disability benefits, then generally speaking, the employment context is secondary. In other words, your primary dealings as a disability claimant is with your adjuster, the claims person who is assigned at the insurance company to deal with your disability claim. And some insurers are pretty good. They'll periodically update your employer about what's happening with your disability claim. Some are not as good. And so you may have your employer reaching out to you directly asking what's happening with your health, are you planning on returning? You know, we yep. understand you're still getting disability benefits. All absolutely fair. But I don't think that your employer is necessarily entitled to know that you're going to travel. I don't know if those two things necessarily go together. And in fact, if you're on an approved disability leave, I think your activities are not necessarily relevant to your employment. I think where it becomes more relevant is if Carrie's actually on the cusp of returning back to work and she's doing some return to work planning. And in the midst of that, she's hoping that she can get some time to travel and do some other things. That's a totally different conversation. But I think if you're still getting disability benefits and your primary communication is with your disability insurer, I'm not concerned about the employer being involved in any way, in any decision making around you taking some trips, Carrie. So I'm giving you a bit of a, a green light with the caveat that you want to check your policy and you want to make sure you get sign off from your doctor. 
Carrie, appreciate that. Thank you so much for the email and contributing to the show. In the meantime, you can always reach out if you have any other questions by phone to Tamar and her team. Always ask you to do that. Uh, no problem. one 821 5900 I did mention at uh, the start of the show, the website, mydisabilityquestions.com. That one's a beauty because it allows you to use your smartphone or your tablet or your desktop to ask questions and uh, have them answered. It's anonymous. It's free. It's also got a searchable database, meaning that uh, the algorithm's built so you can search your questions, see if it has been asked previously. It'll save you a bit of time, right? You can just simply read the answer that follows. But uh, from that one, mydisabilityquestions.com tomorrow, probably the shortest question we've ever had. Can I work on LTD? <laughs> Done. <laughs> That's it. Can I work while getting LTD? That's it. And so it is a very good question. And it's a short one. And I appreciate it from mydisabilityquestions.com <laughs> because, you know, John, I think it's a fair question, right? I mean, and, and it, again, it's similar to what we talked about in Gary's situation is that you do want to check your disability policy. Some policies say that you can have a partial work capacity and still be entitled to disability benefits. I think I've talked about this actually a little bit but I, on the show that I've got a few clients now that I'm representing where the claim itself is on a partial work capacity. The claim against the disability insurer is for top-up benefits over and above what the individual is making in earnings actually working at their employment. They're tricky claims, John, so I don't want people to hear, hey, I can work and also get LTD. It's not that straightforward. And why I say it's tricky is because you know, the medical information is so important in situations like this. So the one that comes to mind is is a client who has been permanently restricted to only work something like 15 to 20 hours a week. Um, she and her doctor have already tested the limits of that capacity to work over a number of years. Actually, the insurance company was involved in, you know, part of that process was with the insurer to create those limits, understand what those limits are. And they approved and accepted that those that was an appropriate limit for benefits. And then, you know, they got impatient, as disability insurers do, and realized that she would be on claim in this kind of scenario indefinitely. Uh, and, you know, like most disability policies, uh, they pay until you turn 65 years old. So, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s, that's a long time for a disability insurer to, you know, create a partial work capacity and top up payments. They don't want to pay it if they don't have to. So in a setting like that, I think that, you know, you want to ensure that if that is something that's happening in tandem with your disability insurer, that it is very clear what that capacity is to work and medically that that's supported and that you understand clearly what the insurance company is going to do in a situation like that. But alternatively, if you're challenging your disability insurer, so let's think of a situation like my clients that we talked about at the top of the show, John, where she has not worked for a number of years, she's challenging the disability insurer, and then thinking about, you know, look, I think my doctor is going to sign me off for some kind of work capacity. What do I do in a situation like that? I mean, I always want my clients to be able to work, return back, be functioning. That is absolutely the goal. No one wants to be on disability insurance, okay? Despite what disability insurers like to think, um, I can assure you the vast majority of people who are pursuing disability want benefits want to get better and want to get back to work. And this is the conversation I have with many of my clients. If you're supported by your doctor to make that attempt, then I'm, I'm absolutely endorsing that the attempt be made because then there's a greater chance that it be successful. And if you're not able to be successful in your return to work, then guess what? The insurance company still is entitled to pay disability benefits, even if you had a period where you were able to work, even if you're challenging the disability insurer. So 
like I said right at the top when we were dealing with this question, the policy and the words in the policy around what that work capacity might do with your entitlement to benefits is important to understand. Some policies will say, if you are totally disabled from your own occupation and you have self-employment earnings, we're going to take a credit for that. What self-employment earnings? I mean, I guess if you're running a website or something like that and you're you know, earning some dollars, but you're not back at your own occupation, if you had another job, then I could see a scenario where the disability insurer has to continue paying benefits. You can still be self-employed, but they're going to take credit for income or earnings that you might receive. So very case-by-case case sort of analysis, John. So I wouldn't necessarily say broad brush, you are not allowed to work if you are on disability. You absolutely can, but you want to understand very clearly what those limits are. You want to understand very clearly what your health is allowing you to do. So what is your doctor saying about your capacity to work? And then again, most importantly, what does your policy say around your continued entitlement to benefits and perhaps any offsets or deductions or credits that the disability insurer might get against any employment earnings? Again, it's always worth that phone call if you're uh, confused any time. Don't sit there and, uh, you know, linger and wonder. Just reach out to Tamar and her team. They can answer your questions quite easily. It's uh, 1-855-821-5900. Move on to Salim. Salim says, hey, guys, uh, because of the aftermath from COVID and hospital capacity issues, I've been waiting to get surgery for over a year now. My doctor and surgeon say I should not work until I get the surgery I need. In the meantime, I've been getting injections to help with the pain. I'm still limited from doing physical things, though, including my job. The insurance company is now threatening to cut off my benefits because their doctor thinks I don't need the surgery and I should be able to do a less physical job anyway. I've worked for the same job for uh, 20 years and I'd recently like to go back to it. Uh, is the insurance company required to pay me while I wait for the surgery, says Salim. Wow. Really good question, Salim. And there's a couple of things in Salim's email, John, that resonate with me. And the first is I have been working for the same company for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go back to this job, but I'm not sure I can. You know, what's the insurance company's responsibilities to me in a setting like this? And what becomes very important for Salim is to figure out where he's at in the phase of the policy, right? We talk about how the most disability policies have two periods of time in which you can get compensation for long-term disability benefits. I'm not talking short-term folks, just talking long-term disability. Most policies will say in the first two years where your health prevents you from doing the essential duties of your occupation, you're entitled to get LTD benefits. After those two years though, so after 24 months of payments, the test to continue to qualify for LTD changes and it becomes what we call the any occupation phase of the policy. And then the policy will read, if you can do some other jobs, some other gainful occupation that's in line with your education and your training and your experience, then we as disability insurer think that we do not have to pay you any further, okay? The reason why I threw in that word think in there, John, is because we often get claimants who are denied benefits in this changeover, in that change of definition for the entitlement to disability benefits. And I am absolutely convinced that the insurance companies have done this with intention, right? They don't really want people on claim beyond that two-year mark. Mm -hmm. And they've created these policies with wording and tests and eligibility requirements in order to actually get people off claim. So in that analysis, they are required, the insurance company that is, to review Salim's background, education, training, and experience, 
assess the fact that he's had the same job for 20 years, figure out what his ongoing restrictions and limitations are. So if he's got physical restrictions from pain and other issues, that has to be taken into consideration. And then they do the whole calibration around, is there actually another job that Selene can do? The biggest issue, though, is that what they're looking at from an earnings capacity perspective is typically much lower than what you would see in the own occupation phase. In other words, they're looking at what's considered commensurate wage or commensurate yep. earning, which, John, I know you know this, but for the benefit of our listeners, is typically two-thirds of what you were making before. It, it's usually tied to your LTD benefit level. So because of that connection, the threshold being low, the whole examination around the any occupation, a lot of people will get declined in that phase regardless of the fact that they've had the same job for 20 years. And sometimes we see really absurd um, analyses from adjusters about how, you know, you, you know, someone like Salim can go and answer phones at a call center and that should be enough. And so he's obviously not totally disabled pursuant to the policy. Nothing right. could be further from the truth. It's absolutely more nuanced than that. But if Salim's looking at this as a whole, I'd really want to know, are you in the own occupation phase or the any occupation phase of the policy? And with that, we'll take a quick break, get right back into it. In the meantime, reaching out to Tamar and her team, really simple. It's 1-855-821-5900. And that email address we always go to is help at disabilityrights.ca. More coming up. We'll take a short break and get right back to the Disability Law Show. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. John Skoll's always here at Tamar Agopian. Reaching out to Tamar, always encouraged to do so. If only for a quick question or a chat or something uh, longer, you can do so. 1-855-821-5900 help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address. So I want to uh, just back up and get the last piece of uh, Salim's question we had before the break, uh, Tamar, and that is waiting for surgery and the insurance company saying, yeah, you got to go back or you got to get off, you got to get off claim. Is the insurance company required to pay while they wait for surgery? Because that's going to be some time, could be over a year, possibly, right? It, it can be. And, and I think this is one that's a really, really tricky one because disability insurance companies are impatient. And they don't want to pay John for having you wait around to be, you know, finally on the list, the surgical list to do whatever it is that's required from a health perspective. And it's unfortunate, but I'm not sure the disability insurer is actually right in this position. So what their policies will say is that, you know, look, if you meet the two tests and you've talked about the two tests, then you're entitled to benefits. The other element to entitlement to LTD benefits is that you're getting appropriate treatment, quote unquote, or are being treated by a physician or under a physician's care in order to receive those disability benefits. And I think it's absolutely fair for individuals to wait out for the treatment that's been recommended for them and not put themselves in harm's way and actually get back to work in that time frame. I know insurers are frustrated by the wait times, but frankly, this is why premiums get paid for these kinds of policies. Someone should not be, if not medically cleared, returning back to work only to await surgery and then get back on claim again. Not, that does not make sense to me if you haven't achieved the level of function to allow yourself to get back to your occupation or perhaps some other work setting. Either way, I think Salim is absolutely in the right to wait out for the surgery that's been required and requested by his treatment providers. And in the meantime, ensure that he remains under the care of his family doctor, I'm assuming, or some other practitioner and ensure that that practitioner is providing periodic updates to the insurance company about other treatment efforts. So he mentions injections, for example, John. 
sometimes I've seen with clients who have chronic pain conditions that, you know, injections is one avenue that may be proposed, not across the board, but it could be. And so it's considered a conservative treatment measure. In other words, it's not as invasive as surgery, and it can sometimes be, you know, a means of trying to alleviate pain and other health issues in order to allow someone to have some level of normalcy when they're not dealing with chronic pain all day and night. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the injections will mean that he has enough capacity to work, so that needs to be made clear. But if you're looking at this profile, I know what the adjuster is going to say. They're going to say, ah, oh, you're fine. You get the injections. You're set to go. But I suspect it's his doctors are saying, look, we're, this is just an interim solution for you until we wait out the actual surgical procedure. So the conclusion being that if this sounds familiar, if your disability claim is being resisted or denied by the insurance company because you're awaiting some further treatment with a long wait time, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not entitled to disability benefits insurers may say otherwise. And if that's the case, please don't hesitate to contact us. We have lots of different ways to get a hold of us. We talked about mydisabilityquestions.com earlier in the show. We offer free consultations. We've got lots of information on our website. What do you say, John? Back to you to provide all those details to our listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, that number, one 821 5900 and mydisabilityquestions.com. That's also a good resource on top of the email. And as we've mentioned before in past shows, quick, easy, concise, uh, simple to read notations about LTD can be answered actually by simply going to ltdfaq.ca. Again, it's free, it's anonymous, and it's uh, it's put together like Lego. You can't mess it up. Really, non-legally speak there, ltdfaq.ca. You know, will you still speak to, uh, speak to people tomorrow about their disability claims, even if they haven't yet been cut off by the insurance company, just for a chat? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> I'm unequiv- this is one question I'm unequivocal about because I think that people hesitate, John. I think people are concerned that they're like, well, you know, if I talk to a lawyer, what does that mean? You know, maybe, you know, I don't want to get lawyered up. I don't want to, you know, make things too difficult for myself. True. I-, I absolutely understand that, which is why we offer free consultations, because we can give you some advice. It, it costs you nothing. And then at least you're getting a different perspective on what your rights are. Because here's the thing, John, that I think disability insurers don't get which is they are not actually that transparent about the disability process. I have seen like a one-page guide that some employees are given about what the process is like to deal with a disability insurer. I could tell you it leaves out a whole bunch of things. It's very process-oriented, right? So if you're having trouble with your gesture, if questions are being asked, you're not sure, if updates seem to be happening more often than you think they should be, lots of different scenarios why not ask a disability lawyer? I could give you that context and say, hey, this is why they're asking, or yeah, you know what, that doesn't seem right, or perhaps you're having a conflict with your adjuster. I can provide some context around that and how to navigate that. And I'm happy to do it because I'm coming at it from a totally different perspective. I'm actually looking at it from the perspective of the disability claimant, not the adjuster. Because think about it, John, if you ask your adjuster, hey, is it normal that you're calling me every two weeks to ask me how I'm doing and if I saw my counselor this week and this kind of thing? What's your adjuster going to say? It's human nature that they get defensive about things or they get protective of the company and what the company is doing from an adjudication perspective. They come at it from a very biased perspective. I don't have that bias. I'm going to give it to you how it is. I'm going to be totally transparent with you with my experience and try and leverage that experience to empower people. 
That's really why we do these shows is to give this kind of information to people at any phase of their disability policy. And look, if the claim does get cut off, if the claim does get denied, if you're not sure if any of that makes sense, then yes, hopefully now we've created a little bit of that connection that you can come back to me and ask me, okay, Tamar, you said this might happen. You know, we talked about this thing six months ago. What do you think now? This is what the insurance company is saying. And we can have a really good basis as a starting point to have further discussions about what those options might be once those disability benefits end. You know what? We'll take a quick break because I want to get into an email, but uh, I won't be able to read it with the remaining time in this uh, this particular segment. So let's skip over to the other side. That's you, Rose. Your email's coming up. Thank you for just sending that over. And you can anytime as well. It may appear on a future show, help at disabilityrights.ca. And phone number, 1-855-821-5900. Coming right back, more of the Disability Law Show just ahead. Welcome back, Disability Law Show. Still got some minutes to go through, so we'll get to another email or two for sure. Uh, Tamar, uh, to reach out to tomorrow when the show's done or anytime, really, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, Rose, thank you. Here's your email coming up. Thanks for sending that along ahead of time here. Uh, it says, guys, I took out a private disability insurance policy years ago. I was working as a director of a finance, uh, finance then. My health has not been great these past five years or so, mostly chronic pain with some associated mental health struggles. I took a less stressful and lower paying job uh, doing admin work in the hopes I could continue working and manage my health. My doctor put me off work two years ago, and I've been getting LTD benefits under my private plan until recently. I know you talk about the change of definition on the show, but I don't have that in my policy. Instead, the insurance company is denying more benefits because it says I can go back to the admin work I was doing and because I'm not seeing my pain specialist anymore. Does that make sense? Shouldn't the insurance company be considering the job I was doing when I took out the policy? Oh, I like this one, John. Rose, <laughs> thank you so much for your email. And I'll tell you why I like it is because it's very nuanced. <laughs> and so my disability nerd self is now coming out and thinking about four different ways that we can challenge the disability insurer on this. Uh, but for our listeners, look, uh, most of the policies that we talk about on the show are group disability policies. And they usually will have a change of definition and a lot of the kinds of provisions that we talk about fairly regularly, appropriate treatment and this sort of thing. But private disability insurance plans, which is what Rose has, is one that she would have taken out herself, perhaps with her spouse, through an insurance broker, and she pays the premiums directly. Her employer's not paying for that. And as a result of that, likely has certain terms and conditions or provisions or riders in this plan that protect her for different scenarios. And so one of the important things she says to us is, it's an own occupation analysis. So what the insurance company has potentially approved and paid upon for those two years before they cut her off, John, was on the basis of the admin work and her being precluded from doing the admin work as a result of her physical issues and mental health struggles and so on. So the question then becomes, if they cut you off at that point, and the reason they're giving you for the cutoff is because you're not seeing the pain specialist anymore, does that hold water? Does that actual analysis hold water by virtue of the policy wording? Because what's I think happening here is that you've got an adjuster who probably deals with a whole bunch of group policies, and then maybe they've got a few of these private plans, and you've got this two-year mark, right? And you think, mm -hmm. okay, well, I've got a two-year mark, but I don't have a policy that has a change of definition. So I'm going to have to find a different way to cut off Rose's claim. And I think that's what they've done here, quite frankly. Um, but But not necessarily correctly. I think that What's more challenging from Rose's perspective is that 
The disability insurer will typically look at the job you were doing at the time that you stopped working. So I can absolutely understand and appreciate that you may have had a different job, perhaps a higher paying job, more responsibilities, and in the path of the decline of her health, chose to take a perhaps a lower paying job, less administ- you know, less uh, uh, involved from an essential duties perspective and so on, which she described as, as admin work in an effort to try and keep working. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the insurer is required to go back in time and look at the prior job, even if that was the occupation that you had at the time that you talk, took out the policy. What's making me intrigued about Rose's situation is I actually do want to see what the policy says, what perhaps what her application material looked like, what was the intent of the policy when it was taken out. Perhaps there is a rider and an endorsement in the policy that speaks to what the own occupation is and whether, in fact, it is crystallized in time from when she took out the policy initially. But I suspect that on that point, the insurer may be right in saying that the point in time is the time when you stop working. You were doing this administrative position at the time. And that's really what we're going to look at as our yardstick in terms of assessing whether or not you can return back to work and whether or not you're capable, you know, or whether or not we have to continue paying disability benefits. The other element, though, is that, you know, are they correct in saying that, you know, she's not seeing the pain specialist, that this is an appropriate basis for her to no longer receive disability benefits? And again, I think that that goes back to the appropriate treatment requirement and what it might say around, you know, you seeing is, is you seeing a pain specialist, John, enough to satisfy that requirement? Or are you, if you're not seeing that specialist, can you still meet that requirement if there are other health practitioners involved in taking care of you and being involved in your health, like a family doctor or perhaps some other specialist? Um, like in Rose's situation, perhaps she's got a psychiatrist or a psychologist or some other setting that she's getting treatment for. So in the context of all of this, I think that there needs to be a little bit more analysis, but I suspect that that analysis will lead me to the conclusion that I think the insurance company got it wrong. That's where I'm headed here, okay, John? I think at yeah. the end of the day, it sounds like the analysis that they did is not quite correct, even if it is a private disability plan, because it will have similar terms and conditions as it relates to appropriate treatment, being under the care of a doctor, and that's just simply not good enough, especially if it's an own occupation test throughout on the disability policy, where the insurance company has already accepted and approved you on that basis much tougher for them to turn around and say, yeah, but we're tired of paying you, so we're not going to pay you anymore. This screams out the need for a legal claim, John. Let me ask you this. You know, we flip it back to insurance adjusters. I know a lot of them, as you know, because you worked on the dark side for a while, a lot of these guys have gotten, the women have stacks of claims on their desks. They're doing hundreds of days. It's crazy. But what are, the, what are some of the most common mistakes they make when handling disability claims? The adjusters, that is. Yeah, I, I did work for a big bad insurance company uh, back <laughs> in the day, John, and uh, saw the light and uh, came over to do uh, the good work on behalf of claimants. But I'm I'm thankful for that experience only because it's given me so much insight and so much ability to sort of know, you know, reading between the lines when I see decline letters, knowing what to pick apart in terms of claims files. And one of the most common mistakes I see from adjusters is that they don't take into consideration the full medical picture. That, that, I think, is what it comes down to, is that they don't understand what courts have already accepted time and again, which is that you've got to look at the totality of the medical evidence. You cannot cherry-pick as an adjuster or a disability insurer, and then by cherry-picking, use that as the basis to decline benefits. Insurance companies have gotten their wrist slap when they've done it, 
And frankly, they can't just bury their head in the sand if you've reported to them that you've got lots of things going on, not just this one thing or this other thing. But because of the limited training and experience these adjusters have, I mean, most of them are just entry-level jobs, John. They don't have any medical expertise. They've never dealt with claimants. They've never dealt with disability uh, matters. Uh, you know, they, anyway, that's the backdrop of these adjusters. So you take that and you couple that with someone who has to look at all this medical information. They're not coming at it from a medical perspective. They're not even really at times even looking at the contractual wording or even know the law whatsoever about disability litigation. They are just trying to fit things into neat boxes. And they have kind of a guide, online guide to look at in terms of how long a certain disability claim should take. And once it reaches that time frame, you might be approved for a period of time, and then you get denied past that point. And so that lack of sophistication then creates a huge area of error and mistakes, which, you know, is great from a disability law perspective. If I'm looking at this and I'm bringing a legal claim, it creates a lot of leverage for me. I mean, I, I like to see those kinds of errors, frankly, but very frustrating for clients, claimants, people who might be listening, saying, but how could they get it so wrong? And right. at the end of the day, if you don't assert your legal rights, then you're letting them get away with it. So that's the one message that I want people to understand is that when you don't pursue your rights by way of a legal claim, you're allowing the disability insurer to continue behaving in this manner and continue to make the mistakes that they're making without any correction. Um, and so I like to take it one case at a time, really champion those rights, and at the end of the day, get the compensation my clients deserve. And that is it for another, another show. Great stuff, my friend. And reaching out now that we're done to Tamar. It's quite simple. Try the phone first, 1-855-821-5900. Email address we always use on the show as well is help at disabilityrights.ca. And then you have the option of mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.